If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, we've got a conversation about the history of West Africa with Toby Green, who's the author of A Fistful of Shells, West Africa from the Rise of the Slave Trade to the Age of Revolution which was also shortlisted for the Kuntil History Prize. BBC World History's editor, Matt Elton, spoke to Toby to find out more about where West Africa fits into the story of global trade and culture. Um, What myths about Africa that we hold in the West do you think that we should dismantle? Well, uh, one of the things the book tries to do in the perspective that the book has to start with is of, of the global African past... So one of the myths that has arisen in the last couple of centuries, really, actually, if you go back to where it starts from, um, about Africa is that Africa was somehow disconnected from history, had no part of the global historical process. So that's one of the main myths that the book really addresses. Um, it, and it's a curious myth because Africa was, for you know, a thousand years ago and more was connected to parts of Asia, uh, from 1200, there were annual caravans of pilgrims going to Mecca. Uh, Africa, West Africa was well known in Europe before the Portuguese began to go down the Atlantic coast in the 15th century. There's one of the images in the book is an atlas produced in Mallorca in 1375 of the Emperor of Mali. Uh, and so it's curious that this myth exists, but but the idea that Africa was somehow cut away from global processes is an enduring one. So one of the things the book does, you know, you'll find in this book, both Africans traveling to, for example, Brazil or the Vatican, to India, and you'll find people from Basra in Iraq, you'll find people from various parts of Europe, you'll find people from India in, in West Africa. So you'll find that that's one of the myths that the book addresses. Um, I think another aspect in the West, which has traditionally been associated with African history is the history of slavery. Now, slavery is, of course, a fundamental aspect of the African part, as it is of many uh, histories in the world. Um, but I mean, the comparison I would draw is if we were to write a history of, of Germany and only focus on the Nazis, and we were not to look at some of the beautiful works of music and philosophy which Germany produced, we'd be missing something quite important out. And similarly, if we were to write a history of Africa and just focus on, on slavery, which is what a lot of the history which is taught about Africa has done, uh, and miss out uh, aspects of uh, family life, daily life, uh, aspects of music and art, we'd be missing out a huge amount. I mean, what did people, one of the, at one point in the book I say, well, what were people thinking about in the 17th century on the Gold Coast? Well, actually, they weren't just thinking, of course they weren't just thinking about slavery, they were thinking about what they're going to eat that night, they were thinking about what fashions were in, what what their neighbour, how their neighbours were doing their hair, they were thinking about all kinds of things, you know, so that myth that, you know, African history should be taught through the history of slavery, of course slavery is a fundamental part of how African history ha- evolved, but it needs to be put in its proper context. And that's one of the things that the book also also tries to do. So I think those would be the two fundamental myths to start with. Africa's sort of cut out of, of, of global historical processes and 
the diversity of African history far beyond that of, of, of simply slavery. I mean, how helpful or unhelpful is it for us to consider Africa as a single, uh, a single unity in this? Yes, I mean, of course, Africa is not a not a country. That's the famous blog. Uh, on the other hand, there are commonalities between Africa. And it's a very difficult thing. I mean, one of the difficult things about writing about the African past is that there are so many ideas that exist about the African past. Uh, the racialized idea of Africa, which emerged of a sort of homogenous area, is a racialized idea which comes ultimately through the history of slavery. And so that clearly has to be dispelled. Uh, clearly, East Africa has a very different cultural hinterland to West Africa. This book is about West Africa. If it was about East Africa, we might be looking at Indian Ocean connections to Indonesia or to China or to India. And that's not the sort of thing we're going to be looking at in the case of West Africa. So on one level, there are cl these clear differences which have to, to, to be taken into account. On the other hand, what the book, the, one of the key ways in which I look at the African, West African past in this book is through the history of, of money and, 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 inequality, and inequality, economic inequality. And that is something which does um, bind together aspects of the African historical experience, particularly since the 18th century. So one of the things that people in all parts of Africa have in common today is the economic relationship with the global north, with remittances sent from family members, and, and so on. And so those aspects do create a commonality. So I think looking at Africa homogeneously without understanding which areas that's appropriate for and which areas are not, that's a big problem. But then on the other hand, people are constantly writing histories of Europe or histories of America. And so to say you can't look at commonalities in a key historical region is also problematic. Mm. You alluded to this just now, but I mean, how global was West Africa before the arrival of Europeans? I mean, that's a very important question. I mean, it was, re it was reaching to quite distant parts of the world. There, there, were, there were, for example, the emperor of Mali, Mansa Musa, in the 14th century had... Uh, slaves at court who came from what, what became the Ottoman Empire, came from Turkey. Uh, there were migrants came from Spain and, and settled in Timbuktu in the 14th century. Uh, you had, then you had deeper connections through areas like Iraq. So traders came from parts of the Middle East, from Iraq, uh, from Iran to trade in some of the uh, oases in the, in the, in the Sahara. Uh, in what's now Niger and, and northern Nigeria. So I suppose in that, area, in that sense, it's quite important to break down what we think of West Africa. Parts of West Africa were quite globally connected. Parts of West Africa, for example, parts of northern Nigeria and, and, the, and the Sahara were, were quite globally connected. Uh, and then, of course, other parts weren't. So um, that's an important... That's, that's one of the cases where it's good to be quite specific about what we're talking about. But there certainly were parts of... of of West Africa, which were very globally connected. And as I've mentioned already, there, there were annual pil caravans of pilgrims going from uh, West Africa to Mecca from uh, the early 14th century. So uh, a lot of West Africans had quite a broad experience of, of certainly of the Islamic world. And what kind of commodities were being traded in this period? So in this period, you had um, uh, gold was an important trading item. So gold, uh, the gold from the Empire of Mali 
was essentially the financial basis of the North, the North African, the Mediterranean uh, world, the Dar al-Islam, uh, and, uh, and also uh, provided, the, provided the coinage for some of the coins in, in Spain. The Maravedi came from, uh, which was a coin in Spain, came from gold minted in West Africa. Uh, so gold was an important item of trade. Horses were being traded. Wax, actually, uh, um, a lot of the wax uh, which was being used uh, to to produce candles and so forth in, in churches actually was coming from West Africa at this time. So there were there was a variety of uh, and dyes. Dyes would be another would be another product, uh, as well as slaves. There was a, there was an important trans-Saharan slave trade, uh, certainly from the 11th century, uh, which was also important. So it was a, it was a, there was an active trade uh, in a, in a whole range of of, of products and, and also in slaves. You write that it's hard not to be uh, brought up short by the almost total failure of mainstream historians to take African kingdoms and their history seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it still surprises me that this sort of really rich uh, history has just been completely sidelined. Um, I think the, the thing about African history within the discipline of history, uh, it, it's a very important topic, I think, for young historians, young people to learn, because it really forces you to examine what history is and, ha- and how we think about it and how, it, how it's developed. You know, history ultimately emerged you know, in, as an academic subject in the 18th century as a kind of, as well known, as an f- early form of national nation-building, nationalism. Uh, to, it was a kind of nation, national myth uh, was being created to uh, replace the religious myths, which people didn't any longer believe in so much in the era of the Enlightenment. And that national process in this country, for example, and in most of Europe, and, uh, uh, went with uh, the rise of colonialism and so went with a certain perception of um, other parts of the world, which didn't fit with an idea of actually quite thriving, dynamic uh, areas of the world with their own independent histories of global interactions and so on. So that element of the past is something which doesn't cohere with the way in which history as a subject has evolved over the last 200 years. So clearly that's a tough nut to crack. Uh, A very interesting thing about the African past as well is the way in which uh, the rise of the civil rights movement in the United States has fundamentally changed the way in which that was addressed. So the rise of African history as a discipline coincided with the civil rights era in the States in the 60s, with the rise of black studies uh, as as an academic subject. And, And and the appropriation of certain aspects of the past by uh, important figures in the African-American community. And that's changed the way in which Africa and the African past um, was addressed uh, and the nature of African studies and African history as a discipline. Uh, so that has changed the way in which I think f- from starting in America and then percolating through to the West of the Western Academy, uh, certainly the English-speaking academy, the, the way in which Africa has, vu- has been viewed but, it, but history itself as a subject is, has still been um, a little, quite impervious to that. Although, so, although there are, of course, very good historians of Africa in many, uh, in many countries uh, in the West, but they're often, they're often still slightly sidelined from the, main, the mainstream of the field. Um, returning to the arrival of Europeans, how did that change things for people in West Africa? How did their lives become different as a result of this? Yeah. So, I mean, initially, I mean, if it, I think the first thing to say is it's, it's a slow process. Um, it's quite easy when you're dealing with quite long periods of time, which is what this book does. One of the easy traps to fall into is to collapse time. 
you know, you can say, well, uh, you know, the Portuguese arrived in, in, on the Senegal River in 1444, and by 1497, they were in Mozambique, round in the Cape of Copen. But actually, that's 50 years, which is a, which is a long period of time. Uh, and initially, the Portuguese uh, who did travel to West Africa uh, mostly dropped dead fairly quickly. Uh, they were, they, they looked terrible. And there's one wonderful source which says, you know, the, the king on the, what's now Ghana on the Gold Coast said, well, most of the Portuguese have arrived so far. Haven't, there haven't been very many. They're absolutely disgusting and they smell. You know, so um, these people didn't have themselves much of an impact. I think what, what changed was firstly, the commercial orientation of West Africa. West Africa traditionally, its commercial axes were across the Sahara Desert. Suddenly you had this commercial axis coming in on the Atlantic coast, so it created the opportunity for some areas to negotiate between the different trading routes. Uh, and it created opportunities as well for peoples on the coast who actually really had been you know, marginalized from the mainstream of economic life to become more powerful and more important. It subtly over a long period of time actually created a shift from the Sahara towards uh, the coast. So by the 20th century, of course, most of the capital cities are on the West African coast, whereas in the 16th century, most of the economic life is in the interior. So that was a long, long shift, which was very, which was important. Um, I think the things which, the thing which also changed fundamentally also were, as, were aspects to do with daily life. Uh, in terms of material life, you know, there was a huge import of all kinds of, textiles which came from Europe but also from India, uh, manufactured items like copper pans, mirrors, uh, there was just lots more stuff you know and as I said as I said you know what did people think about in the 17th century well they were probably looking at the sort of stuff that was coming in you know like people do you know they're interested in the latest fashions and that included a lot of these material objects which were coming in uh, and and that and of course an increase in trade produces uh, which there was, produces um, more active markets, uh, produces more wealth, more wealthy traders. So you had more inequality developing over time as some of the traders became more wealthy and more powerful. And those, of course, created broader social and political changes over time. So it's a slow process. And in the first 150 years, you might say, well, there wasn't really that much change at all. But then as the imports of these products become more intense, uh, as the tr as the volume of trade increases, then those changes begin to become more more significant. Mm. You mentioned sources there. Um, I was really fascinated by the range of sources and the range of different places that you had to go to to access these sources. Mm. Can you talk us through that a little bit? Ooh. Yes. Um, yeah. This book was an exhausting process to research in many ways because uh, archives on the distant African past are very dispersed so so I, you know i do use written sources in the book but they come from eight or nine different countries uh latin american archives uh which and european archives uh which retain uh, sources related to the african past from around the 15th century uh and then i use a lot of oral sources in the book um and oral his history in west africa is largely an oral genre uh, so I, I worked a lot. Of, there's a, an archive of oral histories in the Gambia where I've worked a lot, uh, but also conducted interviews in, a, in eight different West African countries. So that's a slow and expensive process. But it's partly it's because, of course, the book deals with quite a wide range of countries in, Afri in West Africa. So it takes a long time to to develop knowledge and 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 
an understanding of those different countries and the differences in them, uh, and partly the nature of the African historical past, that um, the written sources which are used are, haven't been all accumulated in one place because of the nature of that past. So in fact, that itself, it begins to be an education in itself about, about that history. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that slavery existed before the transatlantic slave trade that we talk about a lot in the West. How did, you, how did European demand change the nature of that slavery? Yes, that's a very important question. Um, well, initially, for the first 100 years, 150 years perhaps, yes, so from 1440s to the 1580s, thereabouts, uh, the transatlantic slave trade compared to the trans-Saharan slave trade would, would still have been less strong in terms of numbers. Um, what was different was the, uh, the role of slaves once they reached their destination. So in the trans-Saharan trade, a lot of the captives were actually women and, and, and actually children. Um, and whereas in the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of the captives were young men. Uh, and that was because of the economic production, which uh, took place in mines and plantations, obviously, in the, in the New World. So there was a, there's an important gendered element to this. I think that's very important. Um, so two-thirds of the captives who crossed the Atlantic were, 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 were male and one-third were, were female. And that created all kinds of gendered impacts, both in the New World in terms of the enslaved population, but also in, in, in West Africa. So, for example, a historian John Thornton's done research in Angola, which shows that the the gender ratios on the coast became much more skewed uh, between men and women during the transatlantic slave trade because of the gender demands of the, of the trade. So that's, that was a very important impact. So that was one of the key things which changed, I think, and that related to the, the role of, of, of enslaved people in the New World in terms of agricultural production. Mm. Um, one of the main themes in your book is economic inequality, um, particularly in terms of inequalities in the exchange of economic value. Can you just talk us through a little bit about, about this concept? Sure. So, um, so the, this was a trade. Uh, Europeans arrived with m money. Uh, and, and these days we wouldn't necessarily think of what they were bringing as money, but it was, it was money. You know, if I give you a Bitcoin, I think I said in the book at one point, and you're prepared to accept it, then that's a financial transaction. So uh, the currencies which were in use in West Africa at this time were shells, so that's hence the title of the book, cowries one of the main ones, but also copper, iron, and in cloth uh, were also important currencies. Uh, and in fact, if you look at um, what was traded for the first almost two centuries of the transatlantic slave trade by European ships, it was almost all of it was currencies of some kind or other. Objects which were used as currencies. To start with, it was actually copper arm rings, uh, which was traded, which were traded to known as Manilas, which were traded to the Bight of Benin, uh, and then cowries became very important, but also iron and, as I said, cloth. Um, and these weren't just currencies, and I think this is a very important point. These were not just currencies used in Africa. So cowries were a currency which were being used in in China at this time. Copper was widely used as coin in Portugal. Uh, so these were global currencies. Um, at the same time, cl classical economic theory tells us that if you import a lot of money and you don't import manufacturing goods, manufactured goods for that for that for that money to be used to buy, it tends to lead to inflation. So these currencies lost value over that period of time. Well, and Africa at the same time, one of its major exports were gold, 
um, and also from the Gold Coast until the end of the 17th century, and, and also captives whose labour was, was producing economic value in the New World. So there was, a, there was an imbalance in terms of accumulated value, in, in terms of what Africa was importing in terms of their currencies, which were depreciating economically over time, and in terms of what they were exporting, which was accumulating value outside Africa. And so the book traces that process over quite a long period of time. By the 18th century, things began to change. First of all, there was a big gold strike in Brazil, which um, meant that the gold exports from West Africa are no longer so significant. Uh, and at the same time, more manufactured goods began to be imported into West Africa um, to, uh, to, in, instead of just currencies. So the inflation wasn't so significant in the 18th century, but of course the import of the manufactured goods, by the time that the currencies had already become uh, in, de depreciated on one side and, and increasing in value on the other side, uh, African manufacturing, so the African manufacturing, early manufacturing, so textiles, uh, cloth production, which was a very important uh, source of manufacturing in, in West Africa, and iron smiths, iron goods, those exports weren't, weren't as competitive because of that. So th the net effect was, of course, the import of manufactured goods from Europe largely, but also from India, uh, and, and the and declining manufacturing base in West Africa in the 18th century in the run-up to the Industrial Revolution, which, of course, in the long term has a major impact in terms of the cumulative process over three centuries in terms of economic inequality between Africa and the West. Mm. And the fact that these captives had been taken from Africa to the West mm. meant that the West directly benefited from their labour and Africa was deprived of that labour. Is that another...? Well, that's an important aspect of it. And in fact, um, yes, but also that... Uh, if you look at some of the economic history which has been done in Europe uh, in this period, um, for example, in the 18th century, uh, the, the, the capacity to produce food cheaply uh, is also seen as, 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 as freeing up capital to be invested in other industries. Now, if you take labour, young men, as we've said, so not only a lot of people, but also people who have a... a, a a key impact in productivity away from a, away from a, a huge region, uh, then that labor potential labor value is lost, and therefore the price of food, for example, isn't going to be comparatively as, as, as inexpensive as it might as it was at that time in Europe, and that's also going to have an impact. So yes, the role of that labor not only in producing value, uh, but also in not being able to produce that value in Africa is is, is significant. Are there specific case studies that kind of illuminate these economic processes? Well, I think the best example is probably the Kingdom of Congo. So the Kingdom of Congo, uh, which was one of the most important kingdoms in, in Western West Central Africa in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, was one of the first re uh, kingdoms which, the, which had a, a sustained diplomatic and economic relationship with Europe, with the Portuguese. Uh, and it, so its major currency, the main currency which was used in the Kingdom of Congo was a shell known as the Zimbu. Now that was a shell which had been traditionally had been fished in the island of Luanda, uh, which is the capital of Angola now, which had been controlled by Congo. So the Portuguese uh, captured Luanda in 1575. And as I say in the book, this was essentially like capturing the bank. If, if you were in England, that would be like capturing the Bank of England. You're taking control of the, of the currency supply. Not only did they do that, but they then started importing huge numbers of, of Zimbu shells from Brazil. 
Uh, and so this did create, and, and the evidence is there in the book and, and in other sources as well, it did create um, a huge inflation of the Zimbu in Congo. Uh, and that went alongside uh, the increase in the transatlantic slave trade in Congo. And in fact, if you look at the, uh, the, there's a database which has been compiled by an enormous team of researchers from around the world called the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. If anybody's interested, it's at slavevoyages.org. And uh, that database shows that the region of West Central Africa around Congo, uh, it's estimated around about 45% of all the captives in the transatlantic slave trade came from that region. So this is a very clear case study of the, of the relationship between economic value on the one hand and the transatlantic slave trade on the other. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Actually, as, as the book shows, the idea of ethnicity is constructed and was largely constructed uh, between uh, European and African elites and, 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 and is a simplification of much more complex historical processes. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something I think is really interesting that your book explores is the fact that we know a lot about how the slave trade affected America and the West, we don't really know so much about how it affected West Africa and Africa more generally. How how did it destabilize um, West Africa? Yes, I mean, I think uh, one of the, one, I'm going to shamelessly steal from one of my students here, who uh, who, who, who who I think um, encapsulated this as best as uh, anybody I know, I know. So it was a disruptive factor. Whatever whatever structures were in place when the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, really began to intensify were disrupted. So you had some regions which had small uh, kingdoms and perhaps those kingdoms might become more powerful. You had other regions where you had a very large kingdom which might collapse. It was disruptive because it created new patterns of import, new patterns, new economic patterns and new social patterns. That was very important. So as I said, you had more powerful traders uh, and they, they often developed larger households. Uh, and then you had a rise in uh, slave labor in Africa. And that's a, that's a very important aspect of this history, which is often uh, under-researched uh, under and understudied, is the way in which uh, growing inequalities took place in Africa. But that, and, and one of the, and in, in the last part of the book, uh, I come on to looking at what the impact of that was in the age of revolutions, the way in which uh, the cumulative inequalities, not only between Africa and, and the wider world, but also within Africa, then led to a series of revolutions which overthrew the aristocracies which had grown up alongside it. So you had the rise of, on the one hand, inequality and a, a more powerful entrenched aristocracy, then you had the overthrow of that by a wave of, wave of revolutions starting from the early 18th century right through to the mid-19th century. What was the process by which this led to uh, increasingly authoritarian regimes? Well, I think um, 
one of the things the book tries to do is compare the process of state building in West Africa to the process in the other parts of the Western Hemisphere in this, in this period. And, and so you had the rise of what historians of Europe have called the fiscal military state. Uh, so a, relation, a clear relationship between a growing army and the need to provide a tax base for that army by, and therefore an, a need of, of, of a growing state. You see that in Europe at that time. And of course, that goes with... Uh, a great rise in, in violence, political violence and warfare. Uh, you see that also in Africa, because it's, it, uh, my view is it's actually part of the, an, a, a, a structurally connected process of state building between Africa and, and, and Europe, where also in Africa you have the rise of, increase in the amount of volume of currency available, increase in militarized states and, and warfare, uh, and an increase in, um, and therefore, and, and as you have those processes developing, therefore you have an increase in military authoritarianism developing, uh, as you had it in, in Europe, also in, in, in West Africa. Um, so these are processes which are happening in, 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 in analogous ways because of the fact that, to come back to where we started this conversation as well, the, you know, the myths associated with that, the African past, uh, West African societies weren't cut out from global developments. They were contributing to them, connected to them, influenced by them, and influencing them. And so those processes of state building were happening in Africa just as they were in other parts of the world. So by reinserting Africa into this history, that's not to undermine or diminish the importance of what was happening locally, but it's to say that this was just part of a global trend towards certain things at certain points in time? Yes, I think, you know, that one of the problems with being a historian of West Africa is that uh, you can emphasize, by emphasizing some things, as your question suggests, other things which are also important gain less emphasis. So the book emphasizes Africa, West Africa's global relationships for a very long period of time, which are very important in changing the way in which many people might view the African past. But at the same time, of course, that's not to say that what the experience of that locally wasn't um, being felt through local idioms. So there are chapters in the book which deal with, for example, the way in which religious views were changing, the way in which gender patterns were changing, uh, and, and the way in which kinship patterns were changing. And I think all of those are, are fundamentally understanding how this was experienced in West Africa, and 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 and, and one of the examples for exa that the book gives is the use of um, Malagetta pepper. So the Malagetta pepper was one of the first items which the Portuguese traded for in West Africa in the for, in the late 15th century. It was uh, before uh, they'd reached India, so before the spice trade began through Portugal to the rest of Europe. Um, and in uh, and there were huge volumes of this pepper were traded right through to the end of the 17th century, but in um, uh, in the Republic of Benin, this pepper is now associated with uh, malicious supernatural practices. And as I say in the book, this is something which has evolved over time. Uh, the Malag you wouldn't export huge volumes of something which was associated with that. Uh, so this belief, it, it shows a transformation in belief, but it also shows the way in which that trade therefore became associated with uh, bad outcomes. So it shows how um, the experience, it, it's, a, it's a way into thinking about the experience of these processes in, lo in a local way and how that was translated into practices of healing, uh, health, uh, and also belief and how those changed as well. So obviously, yes, those are very specific to specific parts of West Africa, languages and so on. 
which are very different. But at the same time, there is a very important global resonance which has to, has to be inserted within the broader historical discourse. Mm. You describe there's a culture, and I can't remember which one it is, forgive me, uh, where disappearances or people vanishing is an important part of their folklore. Yes. And we can relate that to, to the experience yes, so of in, slavery. So in our, yes, so the book starts actually with this uh, so, uh, in Guinea-Bissau, uh, my first visit actually to West Africa in 1995. Um, where I was on a, a, a small boat going past a creek and, and one of the old ladies on the boat said, well, that, if you go down that creek, you never come back. Uh, and, and shortly after this, I read a book by an anthropologist called Rosalind Shaw, which, taught, which, which showed in a lot of detail the way in which, uh, as you say, the idea of disappearance or invisibility is clearly related uh, symbolically to uh, dis- histories of disappearance through the slave trade, the way people did disappear and were captured. Uh, and, and so those memories, as that story suggests, still endure and, and are an important part of how people experience that past today. Yeah. Staying with the idea of, of belief, what role does Islam play, particularly into the 19th century? Yeah. So, I mean, it, Islam is, you know, clearly one of the major religions, or if not the major religion in West Africa. And, it was, and, it, and its power grew uh, through this period of time, which is quite significant. Uh, it was important in the uh, 15th century, but it was largely religi- a religion for political and trading elites, and it wasn't a popular religion at that time. Uh, there, you know, there, there, were, there were large numbers of Muslims in West Africa, but it certainly grew a lot over this period of time. Uh, one of the reasons for that was that it offered, um, in a sense, it offered a, if people converted to Islam, it offered a sort of protection from, sla- from slavery because uh, Muslims couldn't enslave other Muslims. Uh, it also, and it also offered an opportunity for revenge. And this was something very important by the late 18th and early 19th centuries, where uh, in northern Nigeria, for example, um, a lot of uh, people converted to Islam and then, uh, and then having been uh, slaves, were able to attack the, the land of the, of the people who'd been the slave owners in, the, in, that, in that part of Africa. So um, Islam offered an opportunity, uh, it offered a form of protection, and it also offered, I think, and another important part, point is it offered a, a, connect, a, a global connection which didn't come through the Atlantic trade. It offered this connection to North Africa, to Mecca, to Iraq, and other parts of the Middle East, uh, and given the disruption, as I've said, which was coming through the Atlantic trade, I think that was also important. Um, you talk as well about other forms of inequality, and you've mentioned this a couple of times. I wonder if there's anything else about sort of gender inequality, particularly as we head into more recent centuries, mm. that you'd like to draw out? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting. When we look at the records and the oral histories, you know, there were quite a lot of examples of queens in, Af- in, the, in, in pre-colonial Africa. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful book, too, by the uh, Nigerian-American historian Nwando Achebe uh, called The Female, Ki- Female King of, Qu- of Colonial Nigeria, which shows that these kind of, um, the, these, the, these kind of rulership practices continued in, into quite recent times. Uh, there were also examples of, of, of women um, Islamic uh, prophets, for example, among the, uh, the Fulani people of northern Nigeria and Niger in the 17th and 18th centuries. So there are aspects of gender relations which were more equal than they became in the 19th and 20th centuries. And I think that's an important part. And in the book, I relate that to 
two things really um in islam the late 18th century saw the salafi movement begin in in arabia uh and which called for a return to the patriarchal values uh, of early islam uh and this had an impact in uh in, in West Africa. And then uh, the, idea, the ideas of uh, Victorian missionaries coming to the West African coast, which were, again, very patriarchal uh, and very, re in, in a way, more reactionary than the ideas of gender relations had been in, in Britain in the 18th century, for example, uh, which, again, I think those two elements had, had important influences in, in, in gender relations in West Africa as we went into the colonial period. Mm. Uh, this is kind of a ridiculous question, given the sweep and the scope of your book. Are there any individuals or particular stories that stand out for you? Um, to talk about the global um, connections of West Africa, I think uh, one of the, as a researcher, one of the things which struck me most was this was was the account book I found of the um, ambassadors of the Republic or, or the Kingdom of Dahomey in Lisbon in the late 18th century. So Dahomey, which is now in, uh, which is in what, in what is now the Republic of Benin, um, had trading connections to Brazil and Portugal. And two of its ambassadors, two princes from Dahomey, went on a ship first to Bahia in northeastern Brazil and then to Lisbon. And then you, in the account book you have you know, the, what, the, what the money was spent on. They, they went to the opera every night in Lisbon for a month. They went to the theatre. Then after that, every night for a month. And, they, you know, you have the, even the, the, the bill at the restaurant they ate in with three bottles of wine and so on. So that was a very... It's not necessarily what most people associate with West Africa in the late 18th century. And it also really made it a very human... Um, experience I think or, or, or touch as, as, to, as, to, as to what had happened um, I think and I think that the other thing which has perhaps most impacted me in terms of of, of stories are some of the come through some of the visual representations so for example one of the the, the first image in the book actually is the, a portrait from the 1640s of a Congolese ambassador in in Brazil uh, Don Miguel de Castro and so finding out more about you know the story of that person, you know, how they came from Congo to Brazil, why they were um, negotiating with the Dutch and, and the way in which that played into global geopolitics at that time. That's another fascinating case. And there are many of them. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what shadows of these histories can we see in the 20th and the 21st century in, in Africa? Well, I think um, there's several elements to, to think about. Clearly, there is the economic question, you know, the, 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 the relationship of capital to Africa and um, what the impact of that has been over the long term. Uh, and then I think also one of the things the book tries to do is look at some of the sacred cows of uh, politics, contemporary politics. So the idea, for example, of ethnicity, you know, a lot of political scientists will focus on ethnicity as one of the driving features of political uh, problems in Africa. Well, actually, as, as the book shows, the idea of ethnicity is constructed and was largely constructed uh, between uh, European and African elites and, 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 and is a simplification of much more complex historical processes and, and certainly is a modern category. Um, and there are other examples of things that... For, another example, I think, would be uh, the state, 
um, a lot of Western discourse on Africa would look to would, would suggest that political problems in Africa often uh, derive from uh, concentration of power in one person's hands uh, and uh, corruption. Um, well, one of the books suggests is that one of the reasons why the state is a problematic construct in in, modern, in contemporary Africa is the historical relationship of uh, the state to uh, the slave trade, uh, the overthrow of the corrupt aristocracies which had led the slave trade in Africa by popular revolutions was part and parcel of a process where people did not trust state power. And that lack of trust in state power, I think, uh, is something which is enduring. So one of the things that the book really also is trying to do is show that looking at Africa as a, quote, problem, uh, which has to be solved by outside uh, interests or outside thinkers uh, is itself a problem. Uh, it's um, because these are all deeply historicized problems which they can't be solved by history, but they certainly require an understanding of history in order to even to address them in the first place. Mm. It's not as if the West isn't currently having problems with nation states, for instance. Are there any lessons that we can draw from Africa Yes, I think there are. I mean, I, I think that um, the um, I think a lot of the problems in Western states, as you say, uh, are very comparable to to contemporary problems in in, in African states. Um, one of the one of the reasons why people don't trust the state uh, in many parts of Africa is also the huge gulf and inequality between the top one or two percent, or whatever you might whatever you might want to call it, and and the rest. And that's clearly a part of uh, the problems which, or, or transformations, political transformations which we're living through in that in, in these years in the West. The the reason why people are uh, suspicious of the status quo and try and trying to promote change of the status quo as they see it is partly because of that gulf. So I think that that question of inequality and the transformations which it leads to politically is a very significant one because it led to ultimately a revolutions and overthrows of uh, African states in the 18th and 19th centuries. And that was the legacy of inequality then. So we have to look at uh, contemporary issues of inequality and, uh, and guard against, well, some people might not want to guard against it, but certainly I think clearly there's a need to understand where those roads lead to. How would you like readers uh, to look at Africa and this region of Africa differently? And how can we in the West approach this subject in a more sort of constructive uh, way, I suppose? I think one of the... I think people often feel a bit reticent about uh, looking at the African past in that, you know, I'm not African. Um, should I be thinking about the past of a... Uh, a place which the West itself has had such an impact in constructive neg constructing negatively. I think what's required is simply an open conversation to start, uh, first of all, just an awareness, an awareness of the significance of this topic, not only for the African past, but actually for the global past. And, and that will, can have an important role in creating more inclusive discussions about a whole range of things. So one of the, you know, one of the big problems, for example, in, in universities, in, in, for example, in history as a subject, is the lack of students from minority backgrounds who go on to do history. And the reason for that is that the subject doesn't speak to them at school. And the reason for that is it's not discussed openly. So we need to have much more open discussions, you know, and, 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 and an understanding that it's fine to disagree about things. 
You know, I mean, nobody's going to agree with anybody about everything. People are going to put things in different ways. But once the issue is, issues which are so fundamental to not only the African past, but actually the global past and to identities today are discussed, at least they become clear. And, and I think that's quite fundamental. That was Toby Green. His book, A Fistful of Shells, West Africa from the Rise of the Slave Trade to the Age of Revolution, is out now, published by Penguin. You can read a version of this interview with Toby in issue 22 of BBC World Histories magazine, which goes on sale tomorrow, the 23rd of April. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Philippe Sands will be discussing his new book, Tracking the Story of a Fugitive Nazi. (laughs) 